lovers, this is Dr. Candace Nicole with How to Love a Human. You can follow me and the How to Love a Human project on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and howtolovehuman.com where I welcome your contribution to the conversation. Today, I'm dialoguing with Gilbert, and I appreciate all you lovers out there for taking this journey with me to discover Hey everyone, today on How to Love a Human, I am with Gilbert. Hey Gilbert, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Happy to be on here. I'm happy to have you. So the way I start is with my non-researchy question first. Are you feeling human or human as fuck half today? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably human as fuck half today. Okay, so tell me how you differentiate the two between human and human as fuck. Um, I guess human to me is just kind of like floating around, just existing, and then human as fuck is like caring about other people and invested in this world. Mm. So it's like uh, an investment in seeing others, not just doing you and kind of figuring out what's going on with you. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, I get that. Is that a most of the time feeling or is it a unique to today feeling? Um, most of the time, I think in grad school, you can kind of get lost a little bit and yeah. just kind of focus on yourself and lose track of everything else. But I try to stay connected to what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you do a good job of that, which is why I invited you <laughs> to dialogue with me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to jump right into... The who are you question. Share your most salient identities with me. Okay. Um, well, my name's Gilbert. I'm 29 years old. I'm a straight, cisgendered, Asian-American male. Um, I was born in Canada, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, lived there until I was about like 12 or 13. And then uh, my parents moved to Minnesota. Um, then I went to high school there and then did my undergrad out at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and went back to Minnesota for my master's and now I'm at Arizona State for studying my, um, PhD in counseling psych. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you kind of started with being originally from Canada and I've been Mm -hmm. doing the study on, um psychologists attitudes about abortion and about half of our sample is from Canada and there's some really marked differences that people from Canada know about like their political climate and their social cultural climate and I'm wondering for you is there something salient about being born in Canada as an um, as an Asian as an Asian male yeah um so it's it's kind of interesting because like um, my childhood was spent in Canada, and then my sort of adulthood was spent in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's like two very different experiences. Obviously, um, I left Canada when I was like twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really remember. You know, it's obviously be very different as an adult. I didn't really pay attention to the social political climate back then. Um, but even as a child, I think you note some differences. Yeah. Like I remember. Um, just in elementary school in Canada, like I'd have children from like all different ethnicities there, and I didn't feel like a foreigner at all. Mm, at least in the school mm-hmm. I was at. Yeah. 
Um, and then I moved to Minnesota in this town called Eden Prairie. Wow. <laughs> and there was uh, very little diversity, even though it was rated like uh, like the number one town to live in through some twenty twenty magazine. Wow. Um, so that was quite the shift. But yeah, I just noticed that it suddenly my identity of being a racial minority became a lot more salient. Mm-hmm. In, the in what way? Um, well, I didn't think of it too much until people start commenting on it more. Got it. Okay. Um, cause in Canada, you know, probably over half my class was like racial minority and just from all over the spectrum, from all across the world. Um, but even in Minnesota, like I actually went to an international school, mm-hmm. uh, which you would think would have more diversity. It did have more diversity, but it still felt different. Got it. Okay. There was more of like a power dynamic. Did the power like, come it from? Cool. It was not cool. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And definitely being like an Asian male would like automatically lump me into the uncool category. Mm. Say more about that. Um, Just... You can talk about it broadly or specifically, but that's something that comes up a lot when we talk about like power, manhood, race, yeah. and that intersection. Yeah. Um, so I think Asian American males are stereotyped as pretty uncool and nerdy and asexual, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a fun place to be, sort of like as a budding teenager. Yeah. Um, so I remember like uh, some of my good friends even like my best friends I didn't even realize it at the time but used to introduce me to like new people as like hey this is Gilbert this is my uh you know he's Asian but I, I promise you he's cool and wow. that was like how I get introduced he's and, yeah, Asian I but I promise you he's cool yeah wow so it was like it needed a specifier to like ensure people that hey you can trust me this guy's cool hmm so yeah, it was very different from Canada, where I was like, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And when you're a kid, you don't really have the language to be like, why the heck would you use it? You know what I mean? Like, why do you feel like yeah. that's necessary? Did you did you notice it reflexively? Or is it something that even at the time you were like, I do need a specifier, or I don't? Um, I think at the time, I was more so like confused. I was like, why, why are they... Why am I being introduced by this? Mm-hmm. Like this, and then once I finally started to grow up, I'm like, I don't like that I was introduced like that. Yeah. When I started finally sort of understanding um, what was what it was like to be a racial minority in this country. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that, so you named being cisgender male, mm-hmm. Asian American, yeah. um, originally from Canada. I'm wondering what makes those identities stand out to you versus some of your other social locations. Um, well, I think that being Asian and being male, that's like readily apparent. Everyone sort of like sees that. So mm-hmm. it becomes more of a salient identity. Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, so my other identities would not be, and I mean, you know, SES, I guess, is more of a hidden identity, but it's mm-hmm. probably more salient than I'm probably aware of. But mm-hmm. um, it's not something we talk about as much, I guess. What about SES for you? Yeah. 
What about socioeconomic status? Um, so I definitely grew up, I would say, in like upper middle class. I went mm-hmm. to like private schools. Um, and then I went to an Ivy League school yeah. uh, for undergrad, which was a very interesting experience. The people were very privileged there. Um, just looking back, I it's hard for me to believe in some ways. Could you tell me like when you, okay, so I know what you mean when you say privileged, but yeah. when you look at it and you have, do you have like a story or an example of that is how I knew that a lot of people were privileged? Um, <laughs> so I remember hearing from one of my friends, he had tried to like enter a party mm-hmm. uh, and he was wearing Old Navy and he was stopped at the door and said that. Um, he couldn't enter the party because of what he was wearing. Wow. Maybe. So just brand recognition. I mean, because you don't have like labels on Old Navy, but they just knew that it wasn't a, a certain brand that would allow you entry. Yeah. Wow. And I think it was a little tough for me to navigate um, as like an Asian American, not like a international student from Asia. Mm-hmm. Because um, I was always, and this is throughout my entire life, like too Asian for the white um, students and kids, and then not Asian enough for like the Asian kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that that's always been something to navigate. Does you do you feel like you still navigate that even as an adult male? Um. Definitely, I think. Yeah. Um. I think I'd be more conscious of it if there were more, I guess if I wasn't as secluded in my small community in grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely notice differences between when I talk about, um, you know, this country and uh, what's going on in this country and talking about it with other Asian individuals sometimes, especially international students may not get it as much because they haven't been here as long, which I totally understand. Yeah. It'd be a little confusing. No, because even though we were both uh, racially Asian, um, we're coming from different social contexts mm-hmm. and different histories. And I wonder about how it intersects with class and nationality and and gender and all of that for you right now. Um, sure. So. Um, Identify as, um, you know, Asian male, I think that has sort of made me easier for me to become like a feminist, Mm. actually. Say more about Uh, that. So I definitely identify as feminist Mm -hmm. uh, and strongly support uh, women's rights and um, equality. I think partially because being Asian male, you're kind of at the lowest sort of end of masculinity, so it doesn't Mm. really like benefit you in many ways in Mm. terms of. the strong, powerful, you know, aggressive, assertive, mm-hmm. uh, those, many of those stereotypes of like, quote unquote, men don't translate to Asian men and people don't see Asian men that way. So it's never, I mean, it's definitely benefited me through my life, but perhaps not as much as other men. Gotcha. I see what you're saying. So it was, I guess, a bit easier for me to um, be like, no, something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. I wonder, does it feel... For you ever like a loss of something that, because I, I experience people's 
understanding of masculinity when it's on the margins of hegemonic masculinity. Like either it's really something they value to not be a part of the like white male ideal, or it feels like a loss of something that should have been based on man manhood and masculinity. And I'm not sure what those should have been are, but yeah. um, I didn't really view it as a loss to mm -hmm. be honest. And yeah. I felt like I was, it was liberating in some ways. Mm. Uh, I felt I had been wearing a mask for a long time. Yeah. And I, I like having conversations and meaningful connections and talking about emotions and all these things that traditionally aren't associated with masculinity. Um, so for many years of my life, I would have conversations with men and we just talk about sports. And I found that, to be honest, kind of boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's what people around me engaged in. And that was the social norm. So that's what I did. So once I sort of began to explore like, hey, I don't need to fit this traditional uh, masculine stereotype, then I actually felt like, oh, I can actually be myself. And then mm. um, women actually like me more when I'm myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. All the things that probably make you a good counseling psychologist <laughs> were things that you had to put on hold to right. portray this type of masculinity that other people around you were portraying. Right, right. Yeah, so it's definitely been, I feel like, a journey for me, a long one. Mm -hmm. I'm still kind of on it. Isn't it always a long journey, man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about things like um, uh, religion or spirituality, um, ability status, things that you may not have mentioned? Um, so religiously, I identify primarily as like agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never raised um, in a religious household. My mom and dad, I think my, my dad is Catholic. Uh, my, my mom is Baptist, but they never actually brought me to church. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure exactly why. My extended family um, is religious, and some of them very highly so. Um, and that is kind of not something we talk about. Yeah. Um, because... You know, for instance, you know, I know some of them have gone to, like, anti-abortion rallies, and I'm very strongly pro-choice. Pro mm -hmm. um, so it's just a topic we avoid for the most part. Um, I don't really see it, see it as a salient part of my identity. Yeah. It's just I'm not atheist. I'm not going to say that, you know, nothing is out there because I don't really know how I could really say that. Yeah. But I'm just being open-minded and, I guess, feeling like if I'm a good person and, you know, fight for others and engage in things if there is a higher power hopefully i'll be all right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i feel you on that yeah um and then you asked about ability status yeah um so i don't really endorse any disability per se um i definitely wasn't born with anything um i think just being a racial minority sometimes in this country feels like mental health is sort of like goes back and forth given mm. everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. But I, don't, I wouldn't endorse it as like a formal disability. Gotcha. Just that stressors based on racism feel right. overwhelming. Right, definitely. With yeah. regularity. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I get that. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. What does okay. love mean to you? Love? Um, that's a tough question. Um, it is a tough question. I think love means like 
really caring about someone um, so much so that it almost drives you a little nutty. Mm-hmm. Like if you see their pain, then like you feel kind of bad yourself and you don't, you even engage in like irrational activities sometimes to like, you know, prevent them from experiencing more pain or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, feeling like guilty when things you shouldn't feel guilty for sometimes. But um, also kind of like the the most human parts of our existence, I guess, is captured in there too. Mm, say more about what like you mean. The, strongest connections we feel with others it's it's um it's hard to describe i guess it's i feel like you need to write an essay to describe it right Mm -hmm. you can't really describe it in a few words but you kind of you know you see two people on the street and you can kind of tell if they're very in love or not and you're like yeah that's what it looks like Mm -hmm. like when you see like old people together and they're still like affectionate Yeah. So you said really caring, sometimes to the point where it drives you nutty. But the way you described that sounded to me like a really deep empathy. I'm wondering if that's a part of it for you. Yeah, it's definitely a part of my identity. Um, You know, obviously I became a counselor because of that reason. And um, sometimes I just wonder, like, you know, in this country, everything's going on right now and all the hate, like, where do these people not have empathy? Do mm-hmm. they just have... And I honestly think some of it is just they have selective empathy. Mm, selective empathy. Say more yeah. about what that... Break that down for me. Um, so I see, especially, like, privileged individuals have a lot of empathy for some situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when those same situations happen to others and they don't have empathy. So I think about like Facebook and, um, you know, the flag overlays when something bad happens mm-hmm. in like a foreign country, people on Facebook will, I think they put the, like the France overlay when some tragedy happened in France. Um, I can't remember what other European country too, but primarily white. And, but there's no flag overlay for, let's say like Syria mm-hmm. or, um, other countries that are kind of in pale right now that are, it's not even just like a one-off, it's like they're constantly, um, I mean, the conditions they live in are inhuman. You know? Yeah. But where is the empathy there? Where do you think that comes from, that selective empathy? Like how can the human mind or heart or mm-hmm. like choose what to empathize with and what not to? Um, I think there are a lot of factors, but I think about media mm-hmm. a lot. I think about how um, stories that are told are primarily uh, white and male, so we kind of are socialized into really caring about those stories. Mm-hmm. And um, they typically portray white men in like very positive ways. Um, so when you know white men don't engage like that, it's it's seen as like an outlier, an exception. Yeah. Um, like when they, when, uh, the whole Dylan Roof thing happened, people suddenly became talking, started talking about mental health for some reason. Um, and mental health might've been a concern, but that, that conversation never occurred. Um, I think it was Dorner, um, the black male who, um, went on a shooting spree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that was never a conversation there or when um, individuals pledged to ISIS, um, you know, kill people. There's, there's never a conversation about mental health there because yeah. it's sort of assumed that this is how those people are. Mm. Mm -hmm. America wants to see it. Um, and if that's what you believe, that this is genuinely how people, those minorities are in terms of like being savage and things like that, you're not going to have empathy for that. Right. So even if you were saying most minorities is savage, mm -hmm. even the people who are affected by that, if they're right. minority, don't receive empathy either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It has to be something like, um, really sort of like shocking and undeniable. Mm -hmm. And even then people really do mental gymnastics to try yeah. to work around having to empathize. Yeah. Like, I think, um, the, what had happened with the, uh, Dr. Dow on the United Airlines flight. Yes. Uh -huh. Um, I think one reason why that generated so much outrage, um, was it occurred in like a privileged setting. So mm. it occurred like on a plane where like a lot of privileged people frequently are there. Um, so it, it sort of makes them check their privilege, I mm -hmm. guess, a little bit and think about maybe this could happen to me. Got it. Uh, but with regards to like, um, like the Black Lives Matter protesters and things like that and Michael Brown getting shot and killed, I think a lot of privileged people think that, oh, that'll never happen to me, so I'm not going to even think about it. Mm -hmm. It's not something they can identify with, I guess. Got it. So to be on a plane and be beaten and dragged off of a plane right. can, can in some ways connect because it's like, well, that could be me because I fly or right. I shouldn't have to bear witness to that type of brutality. So now I'm going to protest it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. I, I guess it's, it's different from how I see things. Mm -hmm. I guess. And I, wonder if I'm the minority sometimes like I feel like it it doesn't have to affect me directly for me to care about it a lot right um but I think I don't know for some reason it seems like a lot of people that's how they operate okay. um which I think is you know the whole podcast is you know how to love a human I think we need to learn how to do that better mm-hmm that's the that's absolutely the point and something I wanted to go back to so there was kind of like a mud-slinging campaign that happened after this man was literally beaten and dragged off a plane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were like, oh, he got the black treatment. And yeah. it's like, hasn't that, been, hasn't that been a function of like anybody who's not white being treated inhumanely? But I'm curious about your thoughts about him. Yeah, so I think, you know, Asian Americans are seen as like the model minority, right? Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes it's, I, I really don't like that because I feel like we're sort of triangulated mm -hmm. with yeah. black folks. Yeah. Um, so like, and it's only a certain percentage of Asian Americans who, who are the model minority. You know, a lot of them like uh, Hmong individuals come as refugees. So mm -hmm. it's definitely not every Asian is doing well in this country. Not at all. Um, but it's, you know, model minority myth is used to, you know, 
push down black folks in their ways. Like, you know, black folks, you know, if you just tried harder, and this is kind of what the white power structure says, just try it harder, just like Asians, then you succeed in this country. But um, it's just, and that sort of takes systemic racism off the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't like being used as like a, a tool like to a, impress others. Right, absolutely. And I, and I was thinking about this, as you just said, a tool of repression. That's exactly what came to my mind, too. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about whether or not, in some ways, it feels not for you, but in general, like, well, at least at least I get to survive. I was thinking about internalized depression. And for yeah. some people, say, well, at least I get to survive at a higher level of experience or in a more comfortable way. Mm-hmm. When you buy into some of these systems of oppression, yeah, I mean it's 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 alienating to not buy into them, right? Because the norm is to buy into them. Yeah. Um, I've definitely limited my social circle because of it, uh, but the relationships I do have have been strengthened because of my interest in social justice. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. It's kind of what comes with like a bit more privilege. It's like, why would you want to um, undo that? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's what I try to tell my other sort of privileged Asian American individuals. Obviously, some of the, not all of them do have privilege, but the ones that do, it's one sort of hard lesson I've learned is that um, they may include you in social circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll never be really a part of like the inner circle. Mm. Say more about that. Kind of break that down. Um, so I think this is just my experience, but like I would try to quote unquote act more white. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I would, you know, take interests that weren't necessarily mine um, and try to fit in more. Uh, but it always feels like there's like a like a glass ceiling almost like you're never gonna because of the stereotypes inherent to sort of being asian um so i mean the stereotypes are different for asian women but for asian cisgendered asian men you know the the passive you know asexual um those stereotypes are always going to hold you hold you back Mm. And um, it doesn't matter really how hard you try because you're going to meet new individuals and they will have those beliefs about you. Yeah. Um, so I think the solution for me has been to not play along. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a winning game for me anyway, so why should I play? Yeah. And some people, this kind of leads into my next question, but some people really perceive that um, stratification and being in the middle of a system as opposed to at the bottom is being loved. Like, oh, well, people really respect and appreciate me because they've placed me in the middle of a system or not at the bottom, bottom of a system. Yeah. Or, you know, I get access in this way. So it must mean that they actually really care. And I'm hearing you say, mm, I don't think that's what the end game of this is or should be. Yeah. I think that's just, um, to placate individuals mm-hmm. into not <laughs> revolting. <laughs> right. Like if I treat you like a human being should be treated in some ways, then... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, you know, when you're used to sort of being oppressed and they give you like little like 
doggy treats, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. And you become, like, happy with each tiny little one, but they're, like, just having a feast over there. Mm. So you're starving, and you get dog treats, and you're like, this tastes amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yep. What would it be like if the world loved you, if it loved cisgendered Asian men from upper middle class backgrounds and all of your identities? <laughs> um, it, I feel like um, I def- we, did, we definitely see better representations in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of like good Asian American male representations. Um, I can only think of one off the top of my head, and that's a problem in and of itself. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I can think of, to be honest, is Harold and Kumar. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, and for us to not always be nerds, mm-hmm. for us to be seen as like regular human beings with sexual desires. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just flexibility in what it means to be human, I guess. Have you experienced somebody off-put by the fact that you would have normal human sexual desires because they were like, I just assumed that you didn't like humans or want sex? Um, I don't know if anyone said that per se. I'll right. Write to me. Um, but one thing I hear sometimes is like, um, you're pretty good looking for an Asian guy, which is like... Damn. Never sits well with me it never should sit well like people have said that to your face yes yep yep and what what i think hurts the most is that um and i definitely not all asian american women do this but i've heard that from asian american women Mm. and i think that stings in a different way Mm -hmm. you know what that's why i feel like i don't know if you read this it's not even a study. It was probably a couple of blog posts or something, but somebody was basically like Asian men and black women should just be together because at the end of the day, we get treated along the same ways by people in our own cultures. And I've heard time and time again, Oh, you're cute for a dark skin girl. And I'm like, what the whole hell does that mean? Yeah. Like, I don't understand how that's supposed to be a compliment. Mm-hmm. It's backhanded as hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody in your own culture, somebody from a similar background to say it to you, it feels like, wow, you just want to buy right on into that. Yeah, I think I think it hurts, too, because it's like these people are, you know, from your culture, mm-hmm. know, you know, a lot of the customs and you would think get it, but obviously not everyone does. Yeah. Um, but I, I do, you know, it's. Um, have really amazing Asian American female friends who, mm-hmm. you know, fight these stereotypes just as, if not harder than most of my Asian American uh, male friends. Got it. What do you think about it is about gender that makes the difference in that willingness to fight? Um, I guess I'm not sure exactly, but I'll try to answer the mm-hmm. question. Um, so I think. You know, for Asian American women, they're often hypersexualized and yeah. seen as these like passive geisha dolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's really tough. And I definitely, um, as a, a male, don't have to go through some of the things they have to go through. 
Um, I think when it comes to like um, Trump and things, and you know him being super sexist, I think in just across the board, um, men supported him more than women. Yeah, um, and I think it's just the the way the world is right now in terms of men being less interested in social justice than women because they have more benefits mm-hmm. from the power structure. Would you say crumbs taste better to men right now? Yeah. <laughs> when some of them are eating the whole cake. So. Okay, got it. Like when I think about men with marginalized or multiple yeah. marginalized identities and them being like, well, this one is, since I have this privilege, I'm just going to go on and be cool with the rest of it. Yeah, and I think it's, I think some of it almost comes from like a bullying mentality, like, you know, they're feeling so oppressed by like, you know, white men that, you know, if you think about like kids on a playground, um, they pick on someone they feel like they can pick on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is like women of color. Mm Mm-hmm. I really don't like that. Or safer outlets for that type right. of trans women or trans men. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Other things, maybe what the world would be like if it loved you. You said representation. What else? Yeah. Um. So one thing I think, in terms of like how people or how I personally sort of gauge like quote unquote racial progress. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember like walking around Toronto and it's such a multiculturally diverse city. Yeah. Um, you'll see um, interracial couples everywhere and it's like no big deal. And not just like, you know, white men with women of color, but like different um, racial minorities together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, people don't look, it's not a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think like romantic relationships, um, are really, I think to me, um, a sign of like how much we love other groups. Mm. Okay. Uh, cause I think there's this thing called like the social distance hypothesis or whatever, where like the closer you get to like another group, the more, um, your biases sort of arise. Okay. If they, if they are there. So like um, the closer you get as it relates to proximity or intimacy? Uh, well, both, I would think. Okay. Yeah. Um, like, I think some, some people and some of my friends even are just people out there would be like, yeah, I'm not racist, but, mm-hmm. um, and they would never say this out loud, but they would probably never date like a black woman. Mm-hmm. And when you like systematically don't date that group, then it comes like, are you really not racist? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like anytime you start something with I'm not racist, then yeah. you've already given me an indication. <laughs> like yeah. That. Yeah, I, I can't trust you anymore when you start a sentence with that. Like I need, yeah. I don't think you get to evaluate it. If you're not a person of color, I don't think you get yeah. to evaluate whether or not you're racist. You don't have you don't have the lens to give that any credibility yet. Yeah, I agree. But, yeah. I mean, it, and it exists within uh, you know um, minority communities Absolutely. too. Like I know um, in the Asian American community, there's a lot of um, anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, for example, like right now, my partner is currently a black woman, um, and I haven't spoken to other family members about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know, like, you know, sort of my older generations of my family have been like um, only like kind of okay with. <laughs> Um, family members like marrying and dating white individuals. Mm, mm-hmm. When you say so kind of okay, like, <laughs> the kind of how they would feel about you know me. I mean, we're just dating right now. We're not married or even thinking about that right now. It's too early, but how they would react to that. Mm-hmm. So a part of it is like I want you to be with an Asian woman, but a part of it is like if you're going to be with somebody that's not an Asian woman, right. At least make it be white. Right, right. So, yeah, it, it it exists across all communities, but it's, you know, it's, it's not the same, I guess. It's yeah. different when white people do it. Mm-hmm, it is. I do think that there's a different way of looking at it. I understand the desire to preserve a culture that's been marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Not to say that it's right or perfect, but I, I get it on a different level, I think. Yeah, and it's like, um, I can understand my grandparents a little bit because, you know, part of them wanting me to date um, like a Chinese woman is so that they can talk to whoever I date. Mm, that's real. Because they don't really speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like that would be really nice for them, you know, yep. but... I guess I have to make my own decisions, too. Absolutely. And I don't want to lim- limit myself like that. What identities... Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I mean, it was just... Um, I was just going to comment on the generational thing, you mm-hmm. know. Um, being born in this country where it's like my parents and grandparents were immigrants. Um, it was a wholly different experience. Yeah. How do you mark the difference from, from your vantage point? Um... And this kind of, yeah, it, it kind of pains me a little bit, but like, um, like my grandparents and my parents, there's a, it, it's very easy to sort of trace the sort of assimilation into American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, cause with each successive generation, like, um, the speaking Cantonese becomes a little less. Yeah. So like. You know, I have, like, um, there's a generation younger than me. Some of my cousins are having kids, and um, they their kids can't speak uh, Cantonese at all. Mm. Um, whereas can't I can't even recognize it. Yeah, so then they can only communicate to, like, you know, three levels or two levels up. So my generation and my parents' generation, they can't communicate to the elders. Mm-hmm. Um and it's hard for me to communicate to the elders, but like my parents' generation, they can communicate with anyone. Um, so it's interesting to sort of see like the gradual loss of that. Yeah. And is there any attempt at reclamation, or does it feel like the loss is pointed and intentional? Uh, it's definitely not pointed and yeah. intentional. I don't like it. It's just, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, like I took. Chinese lessons growing up um, for a few years and tried to maintain it, but like as I get into high school and having all these other activities, it just kind of fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And the sort of more time I spent in white settings and less time I spent in um, primarily Asian settings, I didn't have opportunities to practice it yeah. as much. 
so it kind of gradually becomes lost, which is unfortunate. Um, I do, when I do have time, like want to learn some and try to reclaim some of it. Um, so if I ever have kids, um, I can teach them some of it too. Yeah. And it's hard to find that time. And the fact that you have to find time speaks mm-hmm. to some of the systemic processes that we, we kind of snuff out other languages here as much oh, as we yeah. possibly can. Like there's oh, yeah. not a cultivation. You should be multilingual. You should be bilingual. That's just what <laughs> we all, you know, like. Yeah, definitely. It's like the when people say, this is, this is America, speak English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> And I mean, I've heard people complain about like there being an option one and two English and Spanish for mm-hmm. call lines. And I'm like, why does that even bother you? Yeah. I mean, it's it's happening on, I feel like, a global scale right now mm-hmm. um, because I guess in terms of how I understand what's going on in the world, um, I see it as like... For a while, these countries have sort of been, these Western countries have been democracies. Yeah. Letting all different types of people come in, and now they're wanting to put on the brakes a little bit. Um, So you're seeing authoritarianism rise across the world um, because uh, I guess white people are are afraid that they're, you know, when this is going to happen, they're going to not be the statistical majority. Mm hmm. Um, and they want to maintain their dominance. So they, the only way to maintain dominance and um, is to limit freedoms in your country. Yeah, yeah. That's a really important way to frame that. That the you would that white people would willingly sacrifice democracy to maintain dominance. Yeah, and I think that was the that was what hit home for me after the election. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think Van Jones called it like white lash. Yeah. So it's just that that was disappointing to me, just how some individuals out there are so willing to like sort of it, it made me feel like some people are willing to burn this country to the ground mm. before like, mm. sharing it with other people. Yeah. Yep. And just, I mean, go down in the flames with it. Like, well, we're all going to die here today then. Mm. Right. Which is, I I don't, it's from like a social justice perspective, I I don't know how to reach out to those people. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like for us to connect as human beings, we have to agree on some basic assumptions. Yeah. So like one assumption I operate on is like, you know, a fair, democratic, society where everyone has like equal rights and equal opportunities um, is a good thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and if you don't have that belief, I just, I, where can we find common ground? I don't know. And I don't know that democracy and capitalism ever could really coexist. So I'm right, wondering right. how people even explain that, like how we as people in the U.S. created the language to explain both of those things as working together and meaningful and important to our culture. Cause they're, they're both like hallmarks of you the USA, like in our, how we describe ourselves. I don't know. And we've never been a democracy. <laughs> Not even a little bit, you know, but that we have said it with yeah. such conviction. <laughs> it's impressive. It's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's been a democracy for privileged individuals, mm-hmm. and that's who we always center. Yeah. Um, so it's like those other people don't even exist. Mm. What identities and others do you sometimes struggle to love? Um, that's a good question. Um, so I think one thing that has really shaped my growth and one thing I struggled with in the beginning a little bit. Um, so last year I actually worked at um, a residential substance abuse treatment center for primarily African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really opened my eyes a lot, I think. Awesome. Um, just seeing um, substance abuse as like, these people don't really have hope. Um, you know, in these marginalized communities, they don't really see a way out. Um, the way of making money is to deal drugs and it's always around them. And it's easy to feel good just using it. So I can under- have empathy for them, you know, when they relapse. Yep. Um, Because it's, they can work hard on themselves, right? And work hard on their mental health as hard as they can. But, you know, the system doesn't really want them to, you know, actually be empowered. Um, And, you know, when you get arrested, it's hard to, and you have a felony, it's very hard to reintegrate. We almost make it impossible to. Um, But that was... I guess the the humanity there was not something I was aware of since I had grown up with a relatively privileged background. Yeah. Um, So just having conversations with these people and seeing them as clients and keeping an open mind about it and not being super judgmental, um, that was a challenge. Mm -hmm. It's easier to foreclose on empathy than it is to maintain the capacity to love. Yeah. And... um, and in part of my sort of research process, I've come across interesting. Um, so there's this thing called like the belief in a just world, where it's you know we believe that people get what they deserve and deserve what they get, mm. um, and that's actually linked to mental health, like improved mental health. Um, so it's so it's almost like if you want to get involved in social justice a lot, it's almost like your mental health will take a bit of a dive. Mm-hmm. No, that's real. That's super real. Yeah. So I think that's, it's why it's so hard to get like good allies, I think, because they have to really go down the rabbit hole a lot. And there's, there's a lot of, they use this concept of grit and that's become so popular, but there's a, yeah. there's a rec, a requirement for grit in allyship that a lot of people thought they had because their privilege just gave them a prominent position. And then when it rubber beats the road and somebody doesn't trust you because you've not proven yourself trustworthy, there's like, Oh my gosh, like this is really hard because people don't automatically (laughs) trust me. It's like, yeah, yeah. You didn't do anything to earn that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, what I see some allies struggle with is even if they have really worked hard and probably maybe do deserve the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. they have to understand that these people from like very marginalized communities, when they see faces like theirs, they, you know, they they don't associate that with trust, and yeah. you have to like honor that. Mm-hmm. And to honor it, and at the same time, not take it personally and use your privilege yeah. to act out on that. It's so right. important, and I think that's a skill a lot of people don't realize that they need until they've hurt somebody. Yeah, and to like keep going even when you 
you will hurt people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not easy. No. Final question. What do you love most about you? What I love most about me? Um, that I'm very, very invested in social justice. And mm-hmm. um, even when it's unpopular, I know it's, if I believe in my heart that it's kind of the right thing to do and we should be doing this, then I'm going to do it. Um, even if the it's going to get me might be into trouble. Yeah. Um, just because of the sort of hierarchical structure that wants to preserve the status quo. Um, that's what I like most about myself, I guess. Do you find that you've been met with some trouble along the way or that it's on the horizon and but you haven't yet encountered it? Um, I mean, there's been, so with the whole, um, Solidarity March, um, for which Black one? Lives okay. last year. Okay. I was like, which one? <laughs> yeah. The one, that, yeah, the one we kind of put together. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I was surprised by how many people were like kind of on board with it, mm-hmm. uh, jumped readily on it. Obviously, I think those that weren't on board, I've probably never heard from. Right. Right. <laughs> um. So I think it's nice that we sort of have that social norm in our field where it's like social justice is a value. So it's um, people are encouraged to speak up for it in in some ways, in some limited ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do sometimes think about like, you know, if that is in my history and people know me for that, will people not want to hire me for, you know, future positions or something like that because they don't want to hire in someone like controversial. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that fear makes a lot of sense. A lot of students in particular, but even professionals say that like, well, maybe I'll wait till I get tenured or maybe I'll wait until. And I think my whole way of being is that if I'm not going to get tenured because I'm fighting for my existence and for the existence of other human beings, then you your workplace didn't deserve me, you know, and I think that can. That can be said very easily from a place of privilege because I'm not hungry right now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I'm and I have a Ph.D., but yeah. it, it's I think it looks different across SES and across different levels of marginalization and intersections for sure. Yeah, I, I think um, people like us with like some amount of privilege or people, even people with more privilege need to fight even harder because mm-hmm. they have less to risk. Yeah. And yet people feel like there's more to lose. I'm realizing that. Hmm. Like the the weightier the privileged status, the yeah. more people feel like I have a lot to lose. When and so I don't understand and I'm still reconciling that that misinterpretation of the amount of power you have. Yeah. And I don't well, know if that's intentional yeah. or not. I mean I can see some logic in that like if you have a lot of privilege, then, you know, you're falling from a higher sort of place. Mm-hmm. But you, in some ways, you, you do have the, the safety net. You're not going to fall flat on the ground like some people from marginalized groups. Yeah. You know, I think about, like, how, you know, um, Darren Wilson, he got, like, crowdfunded for, like, someone started crowdfunding yeah. for, like, a million dollars yeah. after he killed someone. I mean, quickly, though. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there is a safety net. You mm-hmm. can, you will fall, but you won't fall as far. 
Yeah. To the absolute floor, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody has a different idea of what the floor is. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just a question of how invested you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other things you might want to add that I didn't get a chance to ask you? Um... So I think one thing that really sort of shaped me is a little bit of a story, but um, like a month after the Solidarity March and, you know, sort of me standing up for um, black lives, um, you know, one of my family members had has issues with mental health and we had to call the police. Mm. Um, so that was a really sort of coming for a full circle experience. And there was, you know, the police were kind of, violent and mm. even though the person had mental health issues they like put press charges yeah so i think uh, what people sort of what i took away from that story is like i think people mistakenly believe that black lives matter doesn't benefit everyone but it really sort of does mm-hmm. like limiting police brutality benefits everyone it definitely benefits black people a lot and they really need it but it benefits all of us yeah and that that person's experience being harmed in some important ways in a moment of serious vulnerability, especially if you're having a mental health crisis, mm-hmm. it has lasting impact for how everybody who witnessed that right. interacts with police and law enforcement. Yeah. I mean, for me, definitely now I'm like, I don't know if, <laughs> if this person has another mental health crisis, I want to call the police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely have to do a better job of that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, I really appreciate you for taking the time to talk with me, and I, I enjoyed having you on, Gilbert. Thanks for bringing me on. I enjoyed talking and just talking about these issues. I talk about them all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. To connect and contribute, go to howtolovehuman.com. For more episodes, find Dr. Candace Nicole on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you like the show, leave a five-star review. Thank you, and see you next week.